morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome, welcome. The slow road to better. Why do we do the slow road to better? Well, we've been lucky where we can talk about it to our our friends, people here at the Stroke Comeback Center, but now then we can tell more people across the world to learn about it. What is the it that we're talking about? Aphasia. Stroke yeah. survivors. Mm-hmm. TBI people. Life moves on. Inspiration help listeners. That our inspiration of a bridge of hope. I love it. Trying to help each other a lifeline. Part of it also is we started doing it. It's not because we just wanted to tell everyone to see what happened to us. But also we wanted to get better talking ourselves oh, with the phaser. Sure. And we wanted to... One day, it's not going to, the phase is not leaving it, but we'd like to crush it a little bit. Let's listen in. Listen in. Good morning, and welcome to the Slow Road to Better. Today, we have with us special guest, Dr. Robert Jackson, soon to be the medical director of the stroke program at Temecula Valley Hospital. He's going to join us and the Slow Road to Better crew and answer all questions stroke-related. We thought this was a good way to kick off June and Aphasia Awareness Month. Listen in. How is everybody? Good. Welcome, Robert. Robert, what do you think people should know about you before we get started? Sure. So um, I'm kind of a, a traveler. So I was born in California, actually in Fallbrook, which is literally just next door to Temecula. So it was like really like a fortuitous way to find this uh, occupation. I went to school up in the Bay Area for undergrad. I went to Berkeley. And then after that, I went to Virginia for a master's program in medical school. And then I went uh, to the desert, to Phoenix, Arizona for residency. And then mm-hmm. I went to uh, Cedar sinai out here in LA for my stroke fellowship. And then for the last two years, I've been working as a neurohospitalist and vascular neurologist out in Santa Monica, California at uh, Providence St. John, and then uh, starting in July to August, depending on how accreditation works, um, I'm going to be hopefully starting as the stroke medical director over at Temecula Valley Hospital. Wow. That's kind of my (laughs) resume. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. What questions do you guys have? What led you to the stroke issues? Sure. So I think stroke is a very unique field in neurology in that you can actually see somebody who comes in completely aphasic. So both expressive and receptive, unable to speak as well as unable to understand any language, unable to move the entire right side of their body. And with our current therapy, they can get TAPA or in some locations, TNK, get a thrombectomy. So a rotor-rooted procedure to actually mechanically remove the clot and they walk out of the hospital two days later, completely normal. There's not a lot of things in neurology that you can take somebody who's that debilitated, give them acute therapies, and actually see a reversal of all of those symptoms and have them come back to normal. So that in and of itself is just an amazing thing about stroke neurology that uh, made me like want to go into it. Wow. All right, let me ask a question. Are you all following that? Because Robert is a fast talker. <laughs> yes. So Everybody's good? Not really. No. Okay, so I got a TBI, so <laughs> sure. So I'll, so I'll back up and go a little slowly. So 
When it comes to strokes, there are two different types of strokes. There's either something that plugs up an artery or something causes an artery to burst. So strokes come in those two different flavors. About 80% of the time, it's something's plugging up an artery. 20% of the time, an artery bursts and causes blood to start to pour into the head. In the setting of something plugging up an artery, acutely, we've got two different types of therapies. One is a medication called TPA. What it basically is, is the way you think about it, is kind of like Drano for the artery. What it does is it helps to try to bust up the clot and restore normal blood flow. So that medication has been around for a while. It's been in clinical practice since about the 90s. It's a really good medication, especially if the clot is very small. It can really help lice that clot and break it up and restore normal blood flow. If it is a very, very large clot, the TPA can sometimes open that up, but the majority of the time it doesn't if the clot is that, that large. In which case, the other therapy that we can do is something known as a mechanical thrombectomy, where basically we stick a catheter, we trace up with contrast up the carotid artery, and we're able to go all the way up to exactly where that clot is. We push a guide wire through the clot. What we do is we put a stent retriever, basically means where that big ball of clot is, we open up a stent that normally helps open up the artery, and that clot goes all around the edges of that stent retriever, and it gets stuck to that because these clots are very sticky. And so we leave that in there for five minutes as the blood flow is now going through the stent. And then what we do is we apply suction and we slowly pull out that stent. With these two therapies, we're able to turn large clots. So it could turn it into like a teeny tiny few dots of stroke years. So we have people who come in unable to speak, unable to understand, unable to move their entire right side, unable to look to the right. And they're able to completely speak again, move their arms, move their legs, able to look around. And they're like, I have no idea what happened, but thank you for treating me. And they're able to walk out mm. two days later. So like, these are the, the huge wins in neurology. How much research or treatment is what I have, what's called aphasia. And I'm just wondering if that is going to do a great deal with aphasia versus just a stroke. Sure. Stroke research is constantly updating and we're constantly moving up our therapies. So back in like the 80s or even before that, Somebody came in, you're concerned that they're having a stroke. You basically, the doctor would say, overcome, give them aspirin. I'll see you in the next day. Because we didn't have any of these acute therapies. TPA came around in the 90s. That was the first big game changer because uh, we showed that about 30 to possibly 50% of patients that got TPA improved within 30 and then 90 days. So it shows that this was definitely helping busting up the clot and restoring. Yeah, the I, I, th I had that. When, uh, TPA started to run its course. Then we started to get the idea of it. Well, if it's probably, if it's due to the clot, what can we do to help remove the clot? And so we started to do these mechanical thrombectomies or these rotorooted procedures to remove the clot. Yes. Initial data showed, yeah, this seems to be pretty good. But then there were some other studies that showed, hey, you know what? This is actually not making as much of a difference as we were expecting for about a two year period of time in like 2016 and 17 these mechanical thrombectomies actually fell out of, out of favor in the stroke community because we're saying this is not really making as much of a difference as we were hoping. 
Then in 2018, these landmark papers in neurology, the looked at people with large strokes and showed that with a perfusion study, so a CT perfusion picture, where you take a picture of the head and you're actually able to show as blood flow goes up into the head, if there's an area that's not getting enough, if there's an area that's still getting a little perfusion, but it's going to die if we don't do something about it. Using these CT perfusion pictures, let's go in and move this clot and see how they do. We found that with those patient population, we were able to mechanically rotor-rooter and move the clot and a incredible amount of patients benefited from this. So this is a huge uh, frame shift in the field of neurology for the last few years. And with that, we continue to move on. We now have another medication called TNK or tenecteplase. This yeah, um, I, I'm lost now, so. <laughs> okay. So this is the, the, the great thing and the bad thing about um, stroke care in the brain is that it's very slow moving, trying to find the right therapies, trying to find things that work. When we find things that work, we are overjoyed and we know that we've got more treatments. But for every treatment that works, there's probably between 10 to 100 different things that we've tried and have found not to work. Real. Wow. A scientist and she's just like exactly she's like her whole life yeah i mean every neuroscientist is a little bit like edison you know you have <laughs> you finally get the light bulb to work for you you know so sure so every minute that you're having a stroke we've gotten some clinical data that shows that you lose two million brain cells for every minute that you're having a stroke which is why we have this kind of uh public awareness campaign for people to help realize the symptoms of a stroke so that way we can hopefully get them into the hospital quicker. So the mnemonic is be fast. So to try and be fast and recognize the stroke symptoms and get somebody to the hospital. So every word, every letter in be fast stands for something. So B is acute balance loss. So inability to walk, inability to hit a target. E is I. So Onset vision loss within one mm -hmm. eye or within one part of the world with both eyes. F is face, acute onset facial drooping, especially the lower part of the face. A is arm, so acute inability to move an arm or a leg. Uh, near and dear to you guys' heart, S is speech. So acute onset speech loss, changes in speech, slurring of speech. And then the most important one actually of all of these is T, which is time. So the faster we're able to recognize these symptoms, the faster we're able to get you into the hospital and hopefully right. do some of these treatments to hopefully reverse what's been happening. Do you see people, you see patients after they leave the hospital? Yes, I, I do follow up outside the hospital. I'm and what, what do you see? So it depends on what the what's going on. So especially within aphasia, because this is the group talking about aphasia. Yeah. I do see a lot of people with aphasia. Obviously, my my biggest goal and what I really you know enjoy about my work is I work in the hospital from Monday through Sunday for seven days in a row. And I yeah. be there as soon as somebody's starting to have these symptoms, try to help make the decision to give them these treatments, try and help yeah. reverse the aphasia. Now, that being said, 
not all of our patients are able to get the medications or the treatment. And uh, there's also sometimes there are people that get a bleed. So instead of it being a clot, it's actually bleeding in that territory that causes yeah. So the biggest things that we do is we try to help figure out, can we give them these treatments? If not, are there other things we can do? Then the biggest question is what caused this big stroke or this? Yes. Wow. What so do you see? So it could be due to a lot of different things. So clot like that, that's filling up that main artery, is normally either due to a clot breaking off from somewhere else. So if you've got really, really severe stenosis. So what what how what causes a clot? Yet um I don't know what my stroke is caused by. Okay. So yeah, so strokes that cause large large territories of um, areas of the brain to be affected and especially aphasia mm -hmm. that is a cortical sign which means that it's the outside of the brain or the cortex that's being affected the big causes of those types of stroke are either it comes from an artery so if you have a really significant narrowing of one of the arteries either a piece of plaque or clot that forms on that artery can break off go downstream and land mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If it becomes completely occluded, where that artery of the neck that feeds the majority of the right side or the left side of the brain becomes completely cut off, then you get, you know, obviously not enough blood flow to the head that can cause stroke, or it could come from the heart. So if the heart has an irregular heart rhythm, something known as atrial fibrillation. Oh, wow. You'll see these commercials all the time. Patients um, <laughs> like, you have AFib or a flutter, ask your doctor about it. So AFib or a flutter is an irregular heart rhythm. What happens instead of the heart making a nice conjected squeeze and pushing out blood, what it does is it kind of just shakes and shimmies. And what can happen is because it's not making a nice big conjected squeeze, blood flow can become stagnant. And if it becomes stagnant because it's not being pushed out, then a clot can form. And then what happens is sometimes that heart makes a nice normal conjected squeeze, that clot breaks off, goes downstream, and can go in to the brain and cause a stroke. Now, there's other types and other causes, like I don't want to get like too much into microneurology, um, <laughs> but like I can, I, I, there's like, when it comes to the causes or the etiology of stroke, like these are like books worth of information, you know, so. Uh, the and sometimes they don't even know what causes someone's stroke. Yeah. Which I so think is the, most, is the most frustrating of all. Absolutely. Unfortunately, about 15% or one in eight people, we don't figure out the exact cause of their stroke. Oh. Yeah. All right. So how did you venture off to this world of a stroke? Sure. So um, probably it's multifactorial. So there's multiple things that help affect it. Number one is my grandfather was a neurosurgeon. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> so there, there might be a little genetic predisposition for neurology. Gotcha. Um, number two is I've always found the field of neurology like so interesting. It's one of the final frontiers of medicine, trying to learn more about the brain because it's the most complex organ, obviously, in the human body. And you're constantly learning more and more things about the brain. Um, and then number three was obviously the hands-on experience. So 
I started to think that neurology was kind of for me um, after my first year of medical school because we did actual neurology. So we had a neuroscience course to learn about the brain and function and stuff like that. And I found it really interesting. So I wanted to get some more actual hands-on outside the classroom experience. So I did some shadowing and research with a neurologist out in San Diego. And I remember specifically, we were talking about something, about a certain patient, and then we heard the overhead, stroke code, room, blah, blah. Mm. So we ran to the room and there's a patient in front of us who's obviously having a stroke with actual aphasia. So they were unable to speak, they were not following commands, and they actually weren't moving the right side of their body. And so this old time neurologist comes to the head of the bed, crosses his arms, looks down at the patient, waits about 15 seconds and says, here's where the stroke is. And then what? I was, I was away. So localizing the stroke just by looking at somebody, not even asking a single question. That's what you're able to sometimes do in neurology. You're able to see it. Really? Yeah. And so him coming in and saying, oh yeah, it's clearly that's where the location of the stroke is. As a first year med student, you're like, this guy knows everything. Like, how do you know this? Like, this is ridiculous. And you start to learn more and more. And you realize that he was just picking up on the very clear clues that the patient was presenting with. And that patient got TPA and we saw them two days later and they were able to start speaking again. So having those kind of experiences is really what helps, it helped drive me at least into the field of stroke neurology. I just don't, I have questions about like the therapies because it seems mm. like there's like, stroke and tbis and then they're also looking at depression and and then yep. they use um rtms and is that actually gonna is that something that's gonna work sure so there's a lot of different things that can cause aphasia so obviously i've been talking a lot about stroke because it's what i'm passionate about and what i know about um, that being said, there are multiple, multiple, multiple causes of aphasia. So obviously traumatic brain injury is a, a well-known one. A tumor is another known one. So like a glioblastoma. A bullet. Uh, yes, trauma. <laughs> so exactly, Hat. a bullet. Yeah, so. Um, I just fell down. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. And then also like tosomedic things. So some people take some medications and make them very, very confused. And that can uh, misconstrued as, oh, they're having aphasia. Yeah. So out of their mind that they're not sure if it's true aphasia or confusion or altered mental status. So aphasia is a very wide, wide range. And the biggest concern and question is, what is the cause of this? Because once you start to figure out what the cause of the aphasia or the symptom is, then you can start to work on the certain treatments. So physical therapy, occupational therapy, especially if you have weakness or movement problems is big, just like with aphasia, speech and cognitive therapy is very, very- And this guy, the, the new thing, but it's like repetitive transcranial- Yeah, magnetic stimulation. No, the mag, like the magnetic stimulation, yes. like is, does that work? Because so, I'm too, I'm too scared to do that. Because they like put you into like a tomb, and I, like I would just be scared. Yeah. So I can tell you that with magnets, there's going to be no ill effects on the body. We use magnets within our MRI machine or magnetic resonance imaging 
So there is no radiation, there's no damage, there's nothing wrong when, that happens when you get either an MRI or this therapy. Now, it is still fairly new, and it's not something that's currently within the guidelines because we don't have enough data on it. So as we start to have more people that go undergo this therapy and we start to get more data, then we can start to kind of bring into question is this is something that everybody should be getting on or is it just certain patient population? Mm. Does this work? So I think it's still a little early for me to say, Um, especially within the field of stroke, which is kind of things that I know the best about. It's not something that's currently within guidelines. So we have the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association kind of go hand in hand to give us guidelines. Oh, okay. All right. How do you feel about alternative treatments like Mm -hmm. acupuncture is one, um, hyperbaric chambers, stem or something like that? Mm Mm-hmm. So certainly there are a lot of different other types of therapies that we use. Um, For aphasia specifically, you know, acupuncture, Eastern medicine, stuff like that can go hand in hand. And I've seen people that do respond fairly well to acupuncture, cupping, things like that. There are people that have, you know, these, um, you know, it's kind of like an end of one. It's like, you know, I had some expressive aphasia. I did some acupuncture, some massage, some yoga, and I feel like I can speak maybe 5% more fluently now. Hmm. Get some people that have these experiences and some people say, I did acupuncture and I think I got a little worse. Did this <laughs> happen to my brain? So the acupuncture. Oh well, no. So, and again, that's, that's the thing is we, we use these techniques and they've been around for a very long time. And we know a lot of them are fairly safe. But that being said, everybody is individual and everybody has a different way of responding to medications and treatments. So but this is something like SMI, like what does it actually do? With SMI? The sensory motor and check, I don't know. Uh, and I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> Integration. And like you're looking at, a, a, like you're looking at a screen, like a screen and you're like doing it. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, like that's something. Video. Yeah. So that's something that our speech therapists use pretty frequently. So using like different picture cards, using screens, ways to try and help to communicate and working on ways for you to on expression, um, music therapies and other things. So people actually sometimes can actually sing better than they can speak. So giving that kind of practice and using different other. That's part of that. So what's in, what's in the green, like in the green, in the brain, like what's actually happening? Yeah. So speech and music are normally in two separate areas of the brain. So it's sometimes that people have a speech deficit, but their musical production and recognition is still preserved. Not for me. Yeah. (laughs) So so yeah, exactly. So it depends on what areas of the brain that are affected. But I've seen people that have significant expressive aphasia. They can't say, hi, how are you doing today? But they can sing an aria from, you know. Wow. So there's very different ways that the brain can be affected depending on what's uh, what's been hit. So that's a different part of the brain? Yes. So yeah, yeah. versus speech are two different areas of the brain. And if this is a stupid idea, uh, what I'm asking, is it left or right? Like what's... 
is a different side. Yeah, so the majority of people, so probably about 90, 95% of people are left brain dominant because most people are right-handed. Most people are left brain dominant where that's where their language comes in. There's only a very, very small subset of people that have their right brain is where their language comes from. Mm. Those people are left-handed, but just because you're left-handed does not mean that your language on the right side. Oh, really? Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What about your vision? Like I'm, I'm left-handed, but my vision on the right is much less than it is on the left. So vision takes many different forms. So a problem with vision could be a problem with the eye. It could be a problem with the tracks. It could be a problem with the back part of the brain, the occipital lobe. So vision is also a very complicated circuit. So when hmm. they've got a vision problem with the right side or the left side, without being able to do a much better examination and look at the eye, look behind the eye and do some imaging, it's hard for me to say with absolute certainty where there's a difference. So talk to me about memory. So memory also is a very important part of our knowledge. Yeah, oh my God. Everything else like that. So people that have strokes or bleeds, memory is a very, very common thing to be affected. I it, know. Yeah, it can be better with time. Um, that being said, some people continue to have memory deficits after their stroke, their traumatic brain injury very frequently. Uh, people with other causes of aphasia, memory can be affected as well. So we unfortunately uh, don't have a silver bullet for memory uh, from a medication <laughs> or treatment standpoint. Um, maybe it's coming down the pipeline. I know that our, our dementia colleagues have been working on this question and what we can do for memory for a very, very mm -hmm. long time. And we are constantly trying new medications, new infusions, new ways to try and help uh, improve or at least stop the slow flow of memory regression in our dementia yeah. patients. Um, we've gotten some things that look promising, some things that have looked promising that have never really worked out or fallen through. Does so, it? Well, no, sorry. I was going to say, just uh, uh, stay tuned. Hopefully more things from memory will be coming. <laughs> but what's the difference between like when you have short-term memory and then like, because I can remember everything from way back, but mm -hmm. I can't tell you, you know, what I had for breakfast. Yeah. So long-term memory and short-term memory are two different circuits. Yep. They're two different areas of the brain, especially the hippocampus. Those are normally the areas that help integrate short-term memories and try to help fuse them and make long-term lasting memories that you can use as quote-unquote long-term memory. So people can have short-term memory problems and people can have long-term memory problems. Uh, it's a very varied uh, reaction to people that have damage within certain areas of the brain as to what is affected. I, I feel better after my stroke, mentally better. What mm -hmm. is a cause of that? Sure. So um, especially in acute strokes, something that we see very frequently is people that can have, I think to Ashley's point, is uh, depression. Depression yeah. is a very, very common thing with people who were walking, talking, living a normal daily life, and then all of a sudden you're struck or stroked down with this horrible deficit. It's a very natural reaction to feel sad and depressed when you went from this, you know, level of function. Yes, I I feel better. Yeah. After yeah. my stroke. 
And so some people can have improvements in mood if there's a certain part of the frontal lobe that can be affected, but there's a lot of people that feel depressed. Mm -hmm. I got you with Tanya. Hey, yeah. Robert, can you talk COVID and stroke? Sure. Right. So mm. um, that's a, yeah, it's another great question that I get asked pretty frequently. So um, when the first wave started to hit, there was a paper that came out of, if I remember correctly, I believe it was Mount Sinai, but I know someone in New York. And they had a case series of five patients that were young, that had no other risk factors that got COVID and they ended up with large vessel stroke. So a big, big clot in one of the main arteries. So the question was, are people becoming more hypercoagulable or is the blood becoming thicker and more prone to forming clots as a result of COVID? Now we have seen a few cases of that. Um, and we've also seen people that have the other reaction is that they actually start to get bleeding in the head as a result of COVID. Here in LA, we actually got together, uh, UCLA, Cedars-Sinai, USC, uh, the Providence system, some of the Kaiser hospitals, um, and we basically pooled all of our data during COVID to see if there were more strokes, if there were more larger occlusions, what was happening in the LA area. And we actually found that we saw a decreased number of really? strokes and large vessel occlusions during COVID. And we were hit pretty hard with COVID. Like our ICU was like very filled in my hospital. Majority of hospitals were all pretty full. So um, the reason I think for that is, is that A, we know that there are some patients that become hypercoagulable with COVID, but it's not everybody that catches COVID that has this issue. And so it goes more and more into the what's known as the heterogeneity or basically the multiple random different effects that COVID can have and affect a certain person. So we've seen people that come in, they have COVID, they have it for a few days respiratory wise, and then they can get completely fine. They never have to be hospitalized. They don't have any long-term problems with it. And then we see other people that are devastated. So like early in our course, I think it was like maybe April of last year, we had a 35 year old ICU nurse came in and he caught it COVID at another hospital. He was shipped to our hospital for higher level of care and he was devastated. So his lungs were just completely just wiped out from this and he didn't improve so much so that he actually got transferred for a lung transplant. 35 year old guy, no other comorbidities. Wow. Wow. So we had some people like that. They were absolutely devastated by this. And we have other people that catch it and they really do see nothing. Symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. So that's something that um, our researchers and Dr. Fauci and the rest of the people at the CDC have been battling against because we have such a wide range of people that are affected by this and the symptoms that go along with it. Robert, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. All thank of your you. time thank and all of your information. I think people are going to learn a lot. They might have to listen to it once or twice to get all oh, the detail. <laughs> Tanya, I, I appreciate your, wait a minute, you lost me. So yeah. it's always great to be an advocate for yourself. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, no problem. Really appreciate it. I learned it. a lot. Um, you also look like you're 25. <laughs> that's, that's, you should see me without a beard. I look like I'm 15 without a beard. So, uh, that's why I have to have some facial hair.
<laughs> That's fantastic. So with that, thank you, thank you again. And we are going to wrap it up on this episode of The Slow to Better. Our lawyers made us say this. Disclaimers. What about disclaimers? Your opinion, the group opinion is not valid. Well, it is, but it's valid, but I'm having a disclaimer so that we don't get in trouble. Yes. Doctors. Doctors. Who's doctor? There's. Um, they. They. Their doctor. Yes. All right. Yes. So if people hear something on this podcast, you should ask your doctor. Doctor. Amen.